0: Please join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and today let's talk about being faithful, even faithful until the end. One of my things I like in the culture, I I like the NFL draft, I like the NBA draft, and so I don't always watch the whole program, it's multi-day, but I'm always interested when that time comes around. So which college athletes are going to make it, who's going to go early in the draft, and particularly who's going to end up on a team that I pull for. But what I particularly like about these drafts for professional sports, I love those rags to riches stories. I love it when a young man has worked hard and he's one of that select small percentage that, that maybe he gets to make it into the pros, but leaving a very difficult childhood poverty to be a multimillionaire in a day. I'm so happy for those guys to be able to elevate themselves economically, sometimes their entire family, that's just, that's beautiful. So I have that set of emotions when I'm watching the NFL draft, NBA draft, but sometimes at the same time, I'm feeling sad for some other men. Because oftentimes in these draft programs, they're gonna to talk to you about previous year's draft picks and how they turned out to be what they call busts. In fact, they have articles like this online, the 50 biggest NFL draft busts of all time. Now, I read those 50 names this week, but I feel so sorry for these guys. I won't tell you which names are on that list. I won't tell you who the number one bust is because I think it'd be unkind to do. Now, you'll have to Google it yourself this afternoon. But it's just kind of sad that somebody is described as a bust. Now, sometimes it's unfair that they have to wear that label. They were drafted, perhaps. They played well but just not up to those lofty expectations and maybe not worth all the millions given to them by the estimation of the coach and the fans. Sometimes they became what's called a bust because of an injury or a series of injuries. And that's kind of unfair to call them a bust because of things beyond their control. But then there are the men who become what they call busts because of off-field pursuits. They did get the millions and they got distracted by all kinds of things outside of their sport and they let down their team. They didn't do the work they were hired to do. Sometimes it's not off-field pursuits, it's off-field problems. Some of these guys with all this opportunity will get themselves involved in scandalous behavior, even criminal behavior, and they never get to play. And they disappoint a whole team. They disappoint a whole fan base. They are busts. Well, today, here we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we're going to see that Paul was very intentional that he would never become a spiritual bust. Now, we're going to come back to verse 19 in a few moments, but right now, let's start in verse 24. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Essentially, what Paul is saying here is at the end of my life and at the end of my ministry, I don't want to be a bust spiritually. Now, how about, how about you? The Bible tells us in Luke 15, that on the day you were saved, the angels in heaven rejoiced in your salvation. And likely on that day, when you put your faith in Jesus, in addition to the angels rejoicing in heaven, that you have loved ones around you, maybe some friends around you that were very excited about you coming to faith. You were born again. You were a new creation at last. You had now a new identity, a new life purpose, and likely you started off well as a new believer in Jesus Christ. But are you still following Christ faithfully? Are you still passionate about fulfilling His call on your life? Are you living up to that purpose and potential that was yours on the day you believed? So we're just using our imaginations a moment, but those angels did rejoice, we're told. But what if those angels kept an eye on you as you progressed as a Christian? Is it possible that an angel would have used the word bust to describe the years that have transpired after your salvation? Is it possible that the angels looked at you and thought, wow, what wasted potential in that one? What what amazing distractions took them away from our wonderful Lord? Wow, this one, such little progress and development as a disciple. So much potential at the beginning. We would have expected more from this one. Wow, such little kingdom impact from this one. So here's the good news this morning. As you spend this time with me just assessing and letting God search your heart, if you discover that, wow, it really has been a bust so far. Hey, we, we serve a God of grace and mercy. God would love to restore you today through repentance and restoration He can make something wonderful for you. If we we go back to the sports world, we know they can be so unforgiving in the sports world. You, You make one mistake, they can write you off. Sportscasters make whole episodes of their program denouncing you, but that's not our God. If you've made a mistake or plenty of mistakes and you've disqualified yourself, our God is merciful. It's his idea to forgive you of all your sins, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you'll humble yourself, repent and believe in him. If we stay with this sports analogy just a second, if up to this point, you'd say it's been a bust by God's grace, you can become a hall of fame disciple just by repenting and believing in him today. But here we look at Paul and we see that he's intent not to become a bust. So let's learn from him together from our passage. First of all, to avoid being a bust, maintain your focus on Christ. Maintain your focus on Christ. When you look at the life of Paul, it's easy to see that he was all about Christ. By God's grace, he never lost his focus. I love what he told the Philippians. He said, for to me, to live is Christ. And die is gain. But don't you love that focus? He could just summarize life. For to me, to live is Christ. Everything hinges on Christ. Could you put anything else in that blank other than Christ? Paul said, it's, it's Christ. Maybe you say, well, Jesus is part of my life, but he's not my life like that. He needs to be in his rightful place. You don't want to be a bust? Then keep your focus on Christ. This is not a point I need to belabor. You, you look at Paul and what we've read already in 1 Corinthians, you see this man's all about Jesus. Well, I just want to illustrate it this way. Just the things he brings up in this letter to the Corinthians. Just I counted this week. I use software to count. But uh, in 1 Corinthians, he used the word Gospel. 11 times the good news. In First Corinthians, he references the name of Jesus 25 times. In First Corinthians, he references the name of Christ, the, the title Christ, 64 times. The title Lord is used 68 times, and he refers to God 107 times. You say, Jim, that's obvious. I, I know it's obvious. I mean, he's, he's writing scripture, but I just want you to see, it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ throughout this letter, never lost his focus. Paul never grew stale in his love and trust in Christ. The point I'm also making, it's easy to see that passion, that focus in Paul's life. It's easy to see he never got over his amazement at his salvation through the grace of God. And here's the question. Is it easy for people to see your focus in Christ? The people in your life, is it just so obvious that this one is in all, this one, this one follows Jesus. Is that obvious for you? So to avoid being a spiritual bust, you want to fuel your faith in Christ. You say, how how do I fuel my faith? Well, the scripture helps us. Jesus said in John 15, you should abide in him. Like a branch abides in a vine, you should abide in him. Colossians 3 says, let let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 says, pray without ceasing. And Hebrews 10, 25 says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. So you want to keep growing, keep your focus in Christ by these measures. And so here, first of all, maintain your focus on Christ. Second, maintain your focus on the mission. Maintain your focus on the mission. And that mission is reaching the lost for Christ. And that takes us now to verse 19, verses 19 through 23. For though I am free from all, I've made myself a slave to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those who are under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. So Paul knew what he was aiming for in his life, to win others to Christ. He uses the word save there. I want to, by by every means, I want to be able to save some by bringing them to Christ. But that word win here, he uses five times in our text. Paul knew he was winning in life when he was winning people to Jesus. I want you to notice with me in this text, Paul here is accepting his gospel, his responsibility here. Remember what we saw back last time in verse 16. He said, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Do you hear that sense of responsibility? I I must do this. In verse 17, we saw last time, he saw himself as a steward of this gospel, that the riches of the gospel, how men and women can be reconciled to God for all eternity That message had been entrusted to him. And do you hear that sense of responsibility? I must be faithful with that. And that sense of responsibility, it explains his life. Maybe it's been a while since you've read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul recounts the dangers of him taking this gospel to other people, dangers on the road, dangers from robbers and all that. And he was just so faithful because what else am I going to do? God gave me this mission. I will be faithful to it. Again, let's look at verses 22 and 23. This could be life verses for you. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. So here's a question for you this morning. On a scale of one to 10, how passionate are you that others come to know Jesus? Scale of one to 10, just in your own mind, in your own heart, You just think that through. Scale to 1 to 10. How passionate are you that other people come to know Jesus? Here's a related question. How responsible do you feel to personally tell other people about Jesus? There shouldn't be a disconnect between those two. But it could happen. Somebody could think, this world's in trouble. This world needs Jesus. Somebody ought to tell the world about Jesus. And feel no personal responsibility to share. Failing to realize how will people hear without people sharing this gospel. And so that comes to us. You and I are responsible to reach out to others. We can't be indifferent to the people around us who have not heard or understood or heard again this gospel message. I'm so inspired by the Apostle Paul here in this text. But also in places like Romans chapter 9. Romans 9, Paul says this. He says something amazing. He said, when he thinks about his fellow Jews, he thought, you know, I would be willing to consider even giving up my salvation if that were such a thing, if somehow that would result in my fellow Jews coming to embrace the Savior Jesus. Now, aren't you glad that doesn't work that way, that God would never ask that of you, that you could give up your salvation for somebody? It doesn't work. But isn't that amazing passion? Isn't that amazing love where it entered his mind? In fact, listen to how he describes it. This is Romans 9 verses 1 through 3. He said, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That's passion for others to come to know Jesus. So, he was focused on Christ, focused on the mission. It shows up in a sense of responsibility, but also it shows up in intentionality. And you and I need to have that same type of intentionality. It's not enough just to say, yes, the world needs Jesus, and I care about that, and, and that's our purpose. But never to do it, there will be a breakdown. Paul was intentional. Remember, the Great Commission tells us to go with this gospel. We know it's God alone who saves through his gospel, but we're to put ourselves out there with that gospel, ready to share the good news with people around us. This is why, as a church, we do, we are involved in church planting efforts. This is why, as a church, we do take mission trips, sending people out. We love to send people out even longer than just trips. So why we do things like Glen Allen Day, and that's coming up next month, and every year we have a table there, and our banner there, and our wristbands, and some candy, and just dozens of gospel conversations through the day right here in our community and it's so striking having these very polite conversations as far as the person wants to go with the conversation but you'll discover there are people right here in glen allen who have never heard the gospel of jesus christ they know something of religion but i remember sharing with one of the young men last year and after sharing the gospel i said have you ever heard that before he said no right right here right here so we certainly have to push ourselves outside of these walls with intentionality to share the gospel this is why we have english clubs we love immigrants and we want to help them in practical ways and while helping them with english we have folks who are pointing them to the gospel this is why we have outreach days and so every orientation session for the new missionaries training here locally we'll get a team of them to come to our field here at staples mill and we'll have members go out with them as they share the gospel in the community we do that because we have to be intentional sharing the good news but do you want to know what our strategy as a church as it regards evangelism? Somebody might say, I don't think we have a strategy. I don't think we have a program for evangelism. Oh, we do. You are the program. Here, here is the plan. You in love with Jesus, growing in your love for Jesus so much that you can't contain the joy you have in him. So much so that you can't keep quiet, that, that you bump up against other people and all the brokenness of this life. And through your own pain, you, you just can't help yourself. You want to share the gospel. So, so you are the strategy of Staples Mill Road Baptist Church to share the gospel on purpose. That's why we do the wristbands out there in the foyer. You can reload today. We have these wristbands with one method of sharing the gospel. But even if you don't use that method for sharing the gospel, it, it encourages my soul when I see you wearing one. And I know where you work, you might not be allowed to wear one. That's fine. But when I see a member of our church wearing one, it it certainly signals to me that they are aware of this responsibility, that they're seeking to be intentional, to share the gospel by by whatever method they use. But it's so encouraging. You are the strategy of us reaching others. We must be intentional with the gospel. And if you need extra emphasis on why you should do it, let's go back to those words Paul used here. I want to, by all means, be a part of saving some let's think about saved from what? What's the big deal? Let's just be very specific this morning. What is a person being saved from when they trust in Jesus Christ? They're being saved from eternal condemnation apart from Christ. They're being saved from an eternity in hell. Everybody's not okay. Everybody's not going to heaven sincerity and whatever belief set people have, that will not get you to heaven. There is one Savior, Jesus Christ, who loves so much. He left heaven, lived perfectly, went to a cross to be tortured and killed for us, to atone for our sins, took our punishment, and was raised from the dead. And the promise is, if you'll believe in him, you won't perish. You'll have everlasting life. That's the message we carry. It's urgent. There is no other Savior. There's also this word win here. Paul said. Five times that I I want to win people. I'll become this to win these people. What are you winning them to? What are you winning them from? Listen, understand, you're you're either winning them to Christ or the world is winning them. The evil one is winning them. There's a lot on the line. If you need fresh urgency and passion, just think about those words. I'm going to win them to Christ. I, I want them to be saved. So we see in Paul a sense of responsibility. We see in him intentionality. We also see in him flexibility. Flexibility. Paul would flex himself in order to reach other people at any cost. And that takes us back to verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. And you remember it, we just read it. So he just talks about all these different scenarios. I'm going to flex myself in order to reach people there. First of all, he says here, I'm free from all. And that takes us back to what we saw last time when Paul was. Reminding the Corinthians, I'm not taking any financial support from you, Corinthians. I'll work for my support. I'll have other churches support me so that I can be free from anybody. No strings attached to me so that I can then be a slave to all. I'm going to be a servant to unbelievers. I can flex myself. I won't flex the gospel. That's unchanging. I can't flex the word of God, but I will flex me in order to get the gospel to other people here. Sometimes we call this cultural adaptation. Sometimes we call this contextualization, that I'm going to flex some things in order to take an unchanging gospel to a, a people group that's different than I am. By the way, this is not about sinning. When Paul says, I'll become all things to all people, that's not like a person. A person can't say, well, all my friends are sinning. They're all going crazy. And so I'll become like them in order to reach them. No, no sin here. This is, this is changing some of those non-essential things in order to win somebody to Christ. In other words, Paul here has a view particularly how he relates to his fellow Jews and how he relates to Gentiles. He's saying this, when I'm among my fellow Jews, I'm going to live in a very Jewish way. I don't have to anymore. I'm in the new covenant, but when I'm around my Jewish friends, I'm going to be very Jewish on my way to presenting the gospel to them. But when I'm in a Gentile audience, non-Jewish people, then I'm going to act very Gentile because I can in Christ, I can reach them that way. I'm going to be culturally sensitive. One scholar said it simply this way. When he was among Jews, he was kosher. And when he was among Gentiles, he was non-kosher. Precisely because, as with circumcision, neither mattered to God. And this is what contemporary missionaries do as well. Unchanging gospel to a different people group. We're going to change some things about ourselves to reach them. So one of the things that changes when a missionary wants to reach another people group is location. And this is a big one. This is when a person realizes that the unbelievers are somewhere else. That's where that people group resides. So I'm going to change locations. I'm going to leave behind my extended family. I'm going to leave behind a culture that I sort of understand. And I'm going to go to a very different place for the gospel. Isn't that love? Not selling out. Uh, I've got an unchanging gospel, but I'm willing to change my location and my whole life to go take the gospel. Here's another thing you change as a missionary. You change your language. Some of us taught English overseas. You had to have a job to live in some of these locations, but the goal was not, I'm going to teach English so that one day I can share the gospel in English to these people I've taught. No, that's a parallel track. I'm going to learn the language of the people that I might share the gospel to them in their language. That's the goal, and that's that's what missionaries do. That's changing. That's a hard thing to do over multiple years to learn a language to that level. Another thing we change is our conveniences. Just leaving here is very inconvenient, but even when you arrive there, you're going to adopt a very different life because you love these people who need the gospel. I was talking to one of our missionaries just a few weeks ago, and he talked about in the culture where he lives, life really gets started out in the community about 8 p.m. If you want to mingle with people and hopefully have gospel conversations, it's going to happen like 8 p.m. into the wee hours of the morning. And being a typical American, he said, I don't want to leave home at after 8 o'clock. I'm kind of winding down. I don't want to leave. But in order to have access, you have to do something very inconvenient. In fact, he told me, he said, if I had two young men to come and serve with me for a year or two, we could could do amazing things in this city. He said, because I could tell those guys, sleep till one, then check in with me. Then you go out. And especially after 8 p.m., you just drink coffee with people deep into the night till about 2 a.m. Then you go home and the next day, sleep till one and do it again. Because that's when the people are out. Do you hear there's changing some things about us to take the good news of a Savior to another culture that does things differently? Yeah, there are a lot of customs like that. You know, you can go to another culture and you, you go into a home, you must take your shoes off. You say, I don't want to take my shoes off. Well, if you go tromping in there with your dirty shoes, you're not going to have a gospel conversation. That's very, that's very rude. Or maybe in the culture where you're going, they're going to sit on the floor. You say, I don't want to sit on the floor. Get down there on that floor. Now you might need help getting up, but get on that floor. And, uh, that's how, if that's how they do it, you, you can, you can inconvenience yourself because you love them and there are different foods you're going to eat. Listen, missionaries do this all the time right now, what Paul's talking about, becoming all things to all people that he might win some. Let's just talk about this. If God were to call you to be a missionary in the Hindu world, what are you not going to eat when you live in Nepal in India? You're not going to eat beef. You could bow up and say, well, I'm a Christian and everything's been declared clean in the new covenant. I'm free to eat meat. Yes, you're free. But if you love Hindus, you're not going to be eating beef when you're living among them. You can lay down food in order to be able to encourage them to Christ. What about this? What if you live in a Muslim context? What food are you not going to eat? Pork. You say, I got freedom to eat pork. I'm in the new covenant. You do have freedom to eat pork, but not if you love Muslims and you're living among Muslims and you don't want a barrier to the hearing of the gospel. Is not their soul more important than your love of barbecue? You can, you can lay that aside until you come on vacation and have something. And so there are things you flex about you. This is what we're talking about. It's not, not selling out. Let me give you some bonus material right here. When, when we lived in Central Asia, they had all kinds of superstitions in the culture where we lived. And there was Islam, and then there were superstitions. And our friends didn't know the difference between their superstitions and actual Islam. And so they had a lot of things. Like they had rules like don't put your hands in your pockets, don't whistle, um, bread rules. But they also had broom rules. So we don't have broom rules. And so there was a superstition there that everybody held to. And uh, that if you're not using your broom, you should lay it down horizontally on the floor. Because if you were not using your broom and you left it leaning against the wall vertically, what what does that mean? That's an invitation for the evil spirits to come into your home. Of course, that's not true, right? But that's what that's what the community strongly believes. So what did we do with our broom when we weren't using it? We would lay it down horizontally on the floor so as not to freak people out when they come in your home. You could say, I'm going to make a point that they're wrong. You're going to have a hard time having people over <laughs> if it looks like to them you've invited, invited evil spirits. All right, here's bonus, bonus material. Because uh, you get a little bit weird when you come back from living in places when you're, you've adapted to their customs and you come back. And I have in mind here elevators, Now, the country where we first served, they didn't have many elevators, but I did have the privilege of teaching English to like a deputy governor for a season there, and it was a building that had an elevator, so I would go meet him in his office going up this elevator. But they had elevator customs, so, so there you can't turn your back on somebody. So in a crowded elevator, it would be very rude if I stood in there, formed a line like we do here with my back to a guy behind me. So there, you if you're the last one in on a crowded elevator, you then turn and make the door another wall and you face all the people in the elevator. And uh, that felt weird to do that there. This doesn't seem right to face people on the elevator. So I finally learned that. Then you come home. It took me years <laughs> to undo that in my head. This just feels wrong to turn my back on people in the elevators. Like I'm all mixed up now. Just illustrating that we flex a lot about ourselves. Because we have this responsibility, this intentionality, this flexibility that Paul's talking about here. I'm gonna adapt me. Can't change the gospel, wouldn't dream of it. On my way to talk about a crucified savior and a risen savior, nothing changes. The word of God does not change. But do you see that flexibility? And we use that same sensitivity right here. We have to. This this has a bearing on when we choose to meet. This has a bearing on the music styles that we use. We're just thinking, what are these people like around us? We're not gonna compromise the gospel. How do we communicate? So so think about this. This very practically. You want to have a gospel conversation. You want to point somebody to Jesus, and this person has no Christian background whatsoever, maybe never been to church. How you start that conversation, you want to be flexible with that. You're going to talk about Christ, crucifixion, resurrection, repentance, and faith, one gospel. But how I start matters. So you can't talk to somebody with no church background and say, hey, are you saved? No, you've just jumped deep into a conversation. That's not a that may not have anything to do that. A church person, yeah, you can do that. You wouldn't say, have you been redeemed to a guy at the coffee shop? What, what, are, we, what are we talking about? You're using fine words, but, but if you would use a little more missionary thought, a little flexibility here, let me bridge to where that guy is starting. Here's a question I typically use if I want to turn a conversation to spiritual things. So sometimes using our wristband, I'll just invite somebody to church. Hey, can I give you an invitation to church? That's usually non-offensive. Occasionally somebody will say, no, nah, no, thanks. But typically somebody will take it. A lot of times they'll put it right on their wrist. And then here's my next question, oftentimes, if, if the opportunity is appropriate, I'll say, hey, do you have any kind of spiritual background? Is that kind of harmless? A lot of people do have spiritual thoughts. You can you could mix that up any way you want. Do you have any kind of spiritual beliefs? Because then I can figure out by them talking first, where are they? Where where are they coming from? And just listen. Hopefully, maybe there or at another time we can go deeper and, and head to the cross, head to the resurrection. Listen, that's not selling out. One more illustration to show you that's not selling out. When, when you want to help a baby eat food for the first time, they're drinking milk, milk, milk comes now. You've got to get them on some solid food. You could take a big chicken and just put it on a plate and say, there it is, solid food. But you wouldn't do that because you love the baby. So somebody, either you're going to puree it or you're going to buy some already pureed, same nutrition, but you love them. You're going to get it in a form that they can take. And then then what kind of spoon are you going to use to help them eat it? You're not going to say, well, if they're really hungry, they'll grab a big table serving spoon. No, you're you're going to go for the smallest spoon you have, maybe even a custom made baby spoon. And you're going to take that nutrition and you're going to try to put it in their little mouth. But then they don't want to take it. And then what do you do? You start making airplane noises and you start using train choo-choo noises because you love them and you're adapting to this little one. What can they take? I want to get this nutrition in them. So the same thing. We're doing with the gospel, not changing it. What do we say? We're rooted in the truth, but we're going to reach in love. So, who is it that you're longing to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ in your life? What are you willing to do to reach them with this good news? Would you today take responsibility to be the one to share with them? Would you be intentional? And again, would you be willing to change the things? About yourself. A beautiful story in Luke 5 about these friends who wanted to get their paralyzed friend to Jesus. And unfortunately, the place where Jesus was teaching and healing was very full, beyond full. And if you know the story in Luke 5, they went up on the roof and removed tiles and lowered their friend down at the feet of Jesus. They got creative, they got flexible. My friend needs Jesus. We're going to find a way. You and I want to have that type of passion to reach people for Christ. Then the final word is this yes. Be focused on Christ that you not become a bust. Stay focused on the mission that you not become a bust, but remain faithful to the end. Remain faithful to the end. Back to verse 24. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but... I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I began the sermon talking about NBA, NFL. Paul starts talking about track and field. He knew his context. He talks about runners. And there in Corinth, they knew all about running because they were the host site of every two years, the Isthmian Games. So the Olympics already existed. Every four years, there would be the Olympics and every two years, though, there will be these lesser games, just second to the Olympics in importance, would happen right there in Corinth. And so everybody knew what Paul was talking about here. Yep, we've seen them. They will sacrifice so much. They will deprive themselves, discipline their bodies to win. What Paul says, a perishable wreath. They weren't doing medals like our modern Olympics. They would have a wreath. They would have a, a wreath of pine there in Corinth when somebody won in the Olympics. It was made of olive branches. Another games that would happen in the Roman Empire, they would have a, a garland of parsley. But Paul said, they'll do all that for something so temporary, but more is on the line for us. Greater reward, how much more would we want to be disciplined that we not become, there's the word, disqualified. And so you and I, as we take this to heart, we want to follow Paul's example here. He refused to be sidetracked from his God-given mission. He refused to be sidelined by sin. He refused to be ruled by his own bodily desires. He wanted to make his body his servant rather than serving his body. He took seriously what he said in verse 27. Let's take it seriously as well. Hear it again. But I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. That word disqualified is strong, isn't it? And you and I have seen people disqualify themselves from ministry. Sometimes it happens quite early in ministry. I still don't know the whole story. The first guy I met when I went to seminary was in a number of classes together. He, he's kind of suddenly disappeared, but I didn't notice for a while. Maybe we were in different classes. You know, you just don't know. You just lose touch. But the last time I saw this man, it was in the administrative building at the seminary and I was there for some purpose, but I saw him and, oh, there he is. And he looked very, very sad and he had a very noticeable black eye and I still don't know the story. I, I assumed, because ne- I never saw him again, out of seminary, never saw him again. I assumed something, something bad happened. I, I could be misjudging, and that's why I would never tell his name, but, but, but I assume he did something that resulted in a black eye and no longer in ministry. <clears throat> I even looked online for him through the years when the internet came around, and I thought, I wonder whatever happened to him. So I'm, I'm typing in pastor in his name, church in this name, never saw him. I don't know, I don't know what happened, but I fear it was it was some kind of disqualification for ministry. But it's not just them in the early part of ministry. Isn't it so tragic when you see somebody who's been a long time in ministry, and they veer into some kind of scandalous, sinful behavior, and you think, what were they thinking after running so well, now disqualified for ministry? Listen, in in all those cases, we see some common denominators, a lack of discipline, a lack of self-control, a lack of accountability. But listen, it's not just pastors and missionaries who can veer off and become disqualified. It's church members. You ever looked at an old church directory and you say, wow, some of these have gone on to heaven. I miss them. I'm so happy for them to be in the presence of the Lord. Some moved out of state and are serving Jesus in another place. But sometimes you know a story like this one's not here and, and they hate Christ now. They apparently never knew him, but this one's been online railing against Christ. And and it's heartbreaking. It can happen to people in the pews, people in the pulpits. This just should not happen to us. And so here are these questions as we go. How, how is your faith? Is your faith growing? Are you, are you focused on Christ? Recapture that focus. Are you focused on the mission that he's given you? Would, you? would you recapture that focus on this God-given mission of sharing the gospel? And this, would you ask for God's grace that you would be faithful unto the end? In fact, as a church, we should pray for one another, that each other, as weak as we all are, that we would all be faithful until the end. Let's close with this. Did Paul finish faithfully? He did. After writing that, I'm glad he did. 2 Timothy 4, 7, we'll close with this. Paul was able to write this, the last letter before he was executed. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. Would you bow your heads with me? This is a great opportunity for you to act on whatever the Lord has been showing you in your life. Maybe that word bust has been looming on you and weighing heavily on you. And again, as we said at the beginning, God is a God of extraordinary grace. He'll forgive you. For wasted years he'll forgive you for sin but but you want to acknowledge to him lord i i have squandered opportunities i have been unfaithful i've been distracted if those things are true just be honest he would be delighted to respond to your confession and repentance with forgiveness and to do something beautiful in your life again to give you greater impact than you ever could have imagined but today would you return to christ and then some today would you put your faith in christ it may be the first time you've understood the gospel Today, would you ask Jesus to be your Savior and your Lord? Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word, a strong challenge for all of us. Now, Lord, by your spirit, help us to respond as you're leading. I pray especially that you'll save men and women as they turn from sin and fruitlessness and put their faith in you, the one who died for them, the one who was raised from the dead. Thank you that you're a God who saves and restores. In Jesus' name, amen.